my talk. Um, I guess I wanted to get right quickly toward um, the title. So, catering to a public of at least two minds. Um, the idea behind the title um, and really um, true to form behind the talk was to sort of take on what I think is a dominant portrayal of the British public um, in terms of their attitudes toward immigration. And I think that portrayal is that of a very single-minded public, actually, that's, that's dominated by um, strong anti-immigrant sentiment um, that wants to see fewer migrants coming in um, every year and is pushing the government to take action. And now, finally, the, the current coalition government is going to put a cap on migration. They're going to cut the numbers dramatically. And I think their thinking is, and a lot of people would, would probably agree, that voters will be happy and reward them at the polls next time. Uh, not surprisingly, in my view, the reality is, is a bit more, a lot more complicated. Um, so that takes me to the f really two senses of two or at least two minds. So the first way that I want to complicate the story um, is to introduce the idea of two minds in a fairly literal way. Um, this is a notion that I borrow from my research from political psychology. Um, from political psychological research, not only on issues of uh, race and ethnicity and diversity, but more general research on attitudes and what an attitude is uh, and how it relates to different behaviors. So um, the second half of the talk is um, going to focus on this sense of two minds um, in which people simultaneously have um, attitudes at two different levels um, toward the same object. One is more implicit. Um, it's not thought through. A reaction on the basis of an implicit attitude can be automatically and instantaneously activated. Whereas an explicit attitude is more what we're used to thinking about as an attitude. Um, I ask you, how do you feel about blue? And you say, I feel good about blue, or, or not so good, or um, whatever attitude you think you have about blue. You tell me um, that takes not necessarily a huge amount of time, but some time, some actual cognitive effort to generate that response. And that's normally what we have and what we think of as public opinion. It's a whole lot of people's replies to questions that elicit their explicit attitudes about various objects, politicians, policies, um, including migration. Um, so this is two minds um, in my research, and we're going to discuss that uh, later on. Um, but I also thought people are of, uh, or the public, which I, I sort of hate to reify as a thing that might even be thought of as having one mind. So the public is, of course, lots of different people all put together, each of whom has their own mind. So there's that obvious sense. Um, but uh, a second sense is that there are different views and different attitudes um, toward different sorts of migrants. Um, immigrants uh, are heterogeneous, that category. Um, we're not always even sure how to define it. Um, so when we say immigrants, it's, it's almost uh, uh, a truism that there are many different types of individuals and groups that one could conjure up um, when some survey interviewer or uh, a question on your screen on an online survey asks you for your opinion about immigrants. Um, you could be thinking of all different sorts of people, um, different levels of skills and class uh, from different nations and backgrounds, uh, religions and ethnicities and so on. Um, and so it's my contention that the public will be of different mind, uh, minds about immigration depending on which subset of that immigrant category uh, any one member of the public is thinking about at the time that a pollster happens to ask him or her a question. So the first theme, again, is um, problematizing, not exactly debunking this idea that there's a public out there um, that can't stand the thought of immigration, wants to see it reduced. Um, I'm certainly not going to deny that when you ask a random sample of British people what they think about migration, whether it should go up or down, 
most of them are going to say down. Um, but again, the question is, which vision of immigration are they responding to? And how does the immigration in their imagination um, compare with immigration in reality, or what I also will call statistical migration, um, migration as it's tracked by the government and conceived by the government? Um, so this opposition that we hear a lot about, it's basically support for reducing numbers. It's measured by opinion polls and surveys of random samples of the British adult population. And it, it is a consistent finding that large majorities say they would like immigration reduced. Um, this is usually about two-thirds to three-quarters, um, depending on the particular poll and, and sample and random factors. Um, and if you break it out further into reduced a lot or reduced a little, you will often get a small majority for reduced a lot. Um, and you get similar results to the similar question of, are there too many immigrants? Um, majorities will say too many or a lot too many. Um, and these data come from academic surveys, such as the British Social Attitudes Survey, the British Election Study. Um, one government survey that, unfortunately, is under the axe right now due to lack of funding, the Citizenship Survey. Um, and from commercial pollsters, Ipsos Mori, YouGov, um, which often do polls uh, at the behest of newspapers or uh, other interest groups. Um, and, and they all consistently arrive at, at pretty similar results on this basic question, uh, pro or con to migration. Um, yeah, and this R's thing will come up in later slides. That just means uh, it's just our abbreviation for respondents, the people that we ask the questions to. Um, so opposition to immigration consistently high over time. Um, don't want to make too much of any trends here um, because uh, this is similar questions but being asked by different pollsters uh, with different wordings, different choice options. Um, so the point is not so much that it's gone down um, but that it was so high to begin with even as far back in the 1960s, when really there weren't all that many migrants here, certainly not compared to now. Um, so the idea here is, is simply that for decades there's been this opposition, um, <coughs> this view that there are too many immigrants, um, and that it's not just a response to the recent rise in numbers. Uh, this one dip is a massive question-wording effect. Um, so the lesson here is, in part, don't trust any one poll. Um, this was they inverted the question, and people had to respond in effect to a double negative, and a lot of them may have been confused. <laughs> so that's one way to get um, higher support for immigration, is confuse them, and only 37% or so opposed. Uh, now, what has changed over time, um, and you could argue that this is in response to numbers, is the salience of immigration as a political problem. So this is a long-standing uh, series that is conducted by Ipsos Mori. They ask, I think, every month um, their survey respondents to name the three most important problems facing Britain today. And the black dotted line is the line for race relations slash immigration. So any, any answer related to those two is lumped together into this one code. Um, and you can see that through the early to mid-90s, it was really sort of uh, a minor consideration on the public radar. And approximately coinciding with when uh, net migration figures started to really increase in the late 90s, um, the salience, uh, as measured by this question, just absolutely took off to the point where, at times, it was number one, sort of number one on the charts. Um, the green is the economy, so it, that eclipsed everything else um, when recession hit. Um, but migration is still right up there as number two. Uh, and this is just to show that Britain is, is not an outlier in either direction in the European context. These are 03 numbers, but it's, it's similar today. Um, if anything, it's, it's toward the high end of, of concern and preference for restricting immigration. <coughs> So that, that background is pretty much the dominant picture. Um, one thing to note is that it's based on um, actually a pretty narrow set of questions, but they're asked repeatedly to the public, and so um, we're pretty confident that they're right as far as they go. Um, 
But getting to this, uh, the second notion that I put out there of a, a public being of multiple minds, I want to talk about the difference between migration uh, as respondents to these surveys are imagining it when they answer these questions, and migration in reality, migration in the numbers. And I would suggest that there are a number of important ways uh, that these, these two diverge, that imagined migration is not uh, real migration. Uh, and these are some of the, the sort of categories um, in which these two seem to diverge. Um, so these are the, the two major claims here. First, this lack of consistency, and second, that opinions can change significantly um, when the focus shifts from one subset within imagined migration to another. Um, so if you push this far enough, the, you could argue that it's, it's um, dubious to even solicit attitudes about um, immigration um, as a single concept, because there are so many versions of it, and uh, different people will be responding to different, uh, different subsets and different versions of imagined migration. And so um, in some senses, you might be getting uh, a confused sort of nonsense when you ask people just to respond to immigration. Uh, they won't be responding to the same thing. So who is an immigrant officially um, in those numbers that you see in the papers? Uh, this is the official UK definition borrowed from the United Nations. Someone who changes his or her country of usual residence for a period of at least a year, um, and I, my thought was only a year is necessary to fulfill this definition. Um, so is this what people are thinking of when they answer survey questions? It's pretty doubtful. Um, surveys, the most common practice is not to provide a definition of immigrant and just leave it um, leave it up to their respondents to figure that out. Um, occasionally, it's, it's, um, it's done differently, um, but it's never defined this way. So for example, the, the British Social Attitudes Survey in 2003 had an extensive module that a lot of people have studied um, on attitudes toward migrants. Um, they kicked off this whole module by defining uh, migrants as people who come here to settle. Um, so not consistent with what produces the numbers. And just so you get an idea of how consequential a distinction that is, you can see that um, according to the International Passenger Survey of people coming in that the government uses to derive its estimates of gross and net migration, um, the inflows in the orange are actually dominated by people who are here for only or plan to be here. We don't know if they follow through on these plans, but plan to stay only for a year or two. Um, whereas in the people who are going or coming for four years or more, more effectively to settle, um, there are actually more people leaving to stay than there are coming to stay. And that's been true for a while. So this is potentially a big distortion in imagined migration compared to statistical migration. Um, now, what happens when you um, add this definition uh, and encourage your respondents to think about permanent migrants? Well, it turns out not that much. Um, this is the BSA over several years, and we can't really draw any strong conclusions from this. These are at different times, and there may be real change sort of in the interim. Um, but at least we can see that 03, um, when this definition uh, was offered, <laughs> It's certainly not an outlier. We still get about the same um, number saying reduce a lot. We get a, a similar distribution. Um, so that it, it's not overwhelming evidence, but it's suggestive evidence that most of the time people are thinking about more permanent migra migrants, people coming to settle when they're answering questions about immigrants um, left undefined, left to their own imaginations. Uh, Another uh, category that is left open to imagination is uh, the nation, region, um, race, ethnicity of migrants. And um, there's probably some knowledge out there that um, immigrants can come from anywhere. Um, but nonetheless, it's very tempting to conjure up a picture, an image of a person to respond to. We don't know a lot about uh, what people are thinking in these terms um, when they're asked a question about migration. So um, I thought that 
in when I got a chance to uh, construct my own uh, module of immigration questions, um, this is on the the BC Cap is the British Cooperative Campaign Analysis Project. It was a panel study um, that started in 09 and continued on in waves right through the most recent election. Um, we got this one on the, the first wave, our first battery of questions about immigrants, asked a series of about 10. And then to get at this issue, we said, well, when you were thinking about those questions, who were you thinking about? And we left it completely open-ended. People could fill in three blanks. Um, they didn't have to name a country. They could say, some people said, well, I was thinking about my neighbor. Um, some people uh, took the opportunity to express their opinions uh, about how terrible immigrants are. Um, but the dominant um, mode, the dominant response was to name um, a region or a country. Uh, and when we coded those responses, we found that Maybe surprisingly, the most common uh, responses within the region or country, the sort of geographic codes, were Eastern Europeans or Poles, uh, then followed by Asia, Africa, Pakistan, and India. Uh, but clearly, um, national origins are on people's minds or easily called to mind uh, in the survey context. And there's a, a range of. Um, sort of a, a, a wide range of choices available to people and people think about different groups. Uh, this, we know, uh, matters a lot for attitudes. Um, these are our findings from my colleague and co-author Rob Ford from the 1990s uh, BSA data. Um, th they asked a series of questions asking people about migration from specific regions and then tracked um, opposition to migration um, separately uh, for each region. And what they found, this is not, um, right here, this is birth year of the respondents. So this is not over time, but sort of over generations. Um, but what they, what they found is from the oldest to the youngest, there was a consistent ethnic ranking that uh, Australian migrants were sort of the most welcome and those from the Indian subcontinent, the most frequently opposed. They did find that the older you were, um, the, the greater this hierarchy, and that both opposition and the, the gaps uh, between categories were shrinking over time. Um, but nonetheless, even for the youngest, it does matter who you're thinking of and where you think migrants come from. Um, it, it does affect your support for restrictions. Uh, and then similar findings from the 2003 European Social Survey. Um, rather than asking about specific regions, they just asked about migrants from uh, the same race or ethnicity as the dominant group in your country, um, and then of a different race or ethnicity. And they found not, not drastic shifts, but um, allowing none uh, as a preference goes from only 9% if they're the same race or ethnicity up to 16%. And the, if you put together allow some and allow many migrants, uh, that goes from 63% in the, the same race or ethnicity down to 49%. So Imagine migration, people may have different imaginations about race, ethnicity, origins, and that will have consequences um, for their attitudes, or, or may. Uh, occupation, wealth, class, another um, potentially vivid category in our imaginations. Uh, the Guardian pulled off this neat trick of actually getting pro-immigration attitudes, people actually asking for more immigrants by asking about certain categories. Uh, of people. So they asked, would you like more people to come to Britain if they have skills in short supply like teachers, nurses, and doctors? 70% overwhelming support. Uh, people with the financial means to support themselves, and actually the full wording here was, or um, someone in Britain, a family member, has the financial means to support them. 67%. And the interesting thing about uh, about that question is the way it aligns with actual policy um, that, that is required of migrants. Um, under the points-based system and previously, um, I had to show that I had the means to support myself 
to get to come here. So um, people maybe don't realize that um, in, in this case, I suppose it's that their imagined migrants are sort of poorer and needier than, than actual migrants as determined by actual existing policy. Um, so aside from categories of migrants, there's also people's imagination in terms of sort of um, factual beliefs. Are they actually informed um, accurately um, about things like the size of the migrant population, the number of asylum applicants? You would think if there's a big demand to reduce migration, they might have an idea of how many are actually coming. Um, the UK compared to other countries, uh, particularly on, on asylum, estimates of uh, the impact of migrants in various ways. And we have some information on this. Um, it's not asked too often, but um, uh, a, a couple of data points. So um, this is 2008 uh, European Social Survey data asking people to estimate uh, the foreign-born as a percentage of the British population. Um, and this is sort of the distribution um, of their answers uh, compared to the real answer, or one, one estimate of the real answer, around 11%. Um, and the median response was 20%, which is actually better than I thought um, or feared. Uh, but you notice there's a huge range, so there are um, significant numbers that are saying a third or, or 40% or, or half or more. Um, so some respondents in these data sets are responding to a, a wildly different picture um, than the reality would suggest. Um, interestingly, on the, the left column here, um, this was a different survey that found a different median, a higher median estimate of 25, that should be people out of 100 or 25 percent, um, actually for a narrow category. This was asking, uh, the 20 percent was in response to just foreign born. Um, the BSA in 09 asked about specifically non-Western uh, immigrants, because these are the ones, of course, who are subject to uh, immigration control. Um, so they defined migration as people, asylum seekers and other immigrants from Asia, Africa, South America, and the Caribbean. And the public actually thought, or this subset of the public thought, um, that they comprised a larger share, 25% uh, median than all foreign-born, which by definition had to be a larger number, which was estimated at only 20. So not even consistent in their overestimating. And then regarding asylum, this was questions that um, we threw onto our, uh, our team module on the BC cap. Um, this was not about number of applicants, but rather um, the UK's share, whether the UK is doing more than its fair share. Um, as, as you often hear people complain about. Um, so we asked what share of asylum applicants uh, in all rich democracies, which we had an estimate of, what share of that were made in Britain. This was the range of responses we got. Um, so many people think it's well over half. And the actual answer is 8.2%. So drastic misperceptions on asylum. And similarly, um, we thought, well, maybe um, they just can't handle the numbers very well, but um, the same thing is true when you just ask in words, do they take more than their share or, or less? Most people say higher or much higher, and actually it's, the answer is slightly lower uh, on a per capita basis. Um, and if you're wondering if this type of information affects attitudes, um, to me this is still an open question, and I'm not thoroughly convinced even by my own finding here, but. Uh, it is a data point, so before that comes up, um, this was the, the first of a number of survey experiments that we embedded in the British CCAP. Um, and here we gave people some information in the form of a news story about asylum. Um, and after the news story, they went on to ask several questions assessing their attitudes toward asylum seekers and preferences about policy. Um, and the experiment was to have a number of different versions of the story. Some came with pictures, some without. Um, the picture could be of uh, a Russian or an Iraqi, uh, I think were the two. Um, and then the manipulation that I want to focus on here is we gave one group 
of respondents uh, this chart showing that um, showing per capita asylum applications and showing that contrary to what most people think the UK is way down here um, taking if anything less than its share and then when we went on to ask that batch um, various questions about asylum are the rules too tough should they get the same benefits and also even it spilled over to a general question about whether immigrants help the economy um, in each case uh, so the dark green is people who just had the plain news story the light green is people who also got that information so in each case um, and I think they were all statistically significant differences the people who got that added bit of information were more positive toward asylum uh, applicants than people who, who had not gotten that information. Moving from asylum back to sort of general, um, uh, general immigrants, uh, this 2003 series of questions asked um, several about what people believe about the impact of immigrants on crime, do they take away jobs, does the government spend too much uh, money assisting them, and um, basically we get fairly negative attitudes. Um, certainly more people agree with the negative view than disagree with the negative view in each case. Um, and these are not quite so easy to compare to actual hard factual information, but there have been studies, um, uh, a recent one that Martin participated in a couple years ago for the House of Lords studied the economic impact uh, of immigrants and found maybe a small positive impact overall, maybe a little downward pressure on wages for lower classes, but not too big of a, a deal either way. So fairly minimal impact compared to the fairly large number that, that think that um, that's the green bars to the left that think that immigrants are coming and taking their jobs. Um, government spending, actually a lot of misperception here I think. Migrants um, until they get indefinite leave to remain are not even eligible for public funds or benefits and overall um, I think the studies show um, that migrants contribute more um, to federal revenue through taxes than they they take away in benefits. Um, and again, a little note about the inconsistencies in um, people's imaginations of migrants. So there, there was strong agreement uh, on the, the 2009 immigration module on the BSA that um, on the one hand, are migrants hardworking or are they lazy? Rate them on a seven point scale. Well, people place them more toward the hardworking end of that scale. There are these hard workers that come take our jobs, right? Very next question, do migrants prefer to be uh, self-sufficient or do they prefer, prefer to live on benefits? And leans right back the other way. So they can't win. They're either hardworking and taking our jobs or they're, they're sucking up benefits. Um, either way, they sort of lose. And people can hold these both uh, seemingly at the same time, or at least they're they're both out there, could be different respondents. Um, now, as I was putting this together, um, I thought, well, this is just a bunch of, you know, th this is from my cloistered elite perspective, or at least I could imagine a Daily Mail letter writer saying this, that you don't know what it's really like out there to live among these foreigners and, and how it actually affects your life. Um, so I thought, well, this is worth addressing. Is opposition migration actually coming from some sort of local knowledge of life uh, around and among immigrants that's not captured um, in these impact studies? Um, well, if that were true, you would expect that people who lived among the most migrants would be the most opposed to migration. Um, actually, you'd find that, at least broken out by region, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Um, you notice on the left here, um, among the, the, what is it, the 11 uh, official regions for government statistics, Londoners are the only ones with a markedly um, less negative, I suppose, uh, set of attitudes. 
still 73%. Um, these look higher because um, these are for UK-born whites only. Um, because for these purposes, I obviously didn't want to include um, migrants themselves. Um, so this is uh, why you get the higher numbers. But even among UK-born whites, people who live in London are uh, less likely to favor reducing migration than the rest. And for the rest of the country, it doesn't seem to matter where you live. Um, it's about the same um, regardless. So that, that too suggests that um, local knowledge isn't what's driving these attitudes. Uh, and then similarly from the citizenship survey uh, that's unfortunately not going to be run in the future, they ask this question about, um, in your local area, do people from different backgrounds get on well together? So if you're having trouble with uh, the getting along with migrants in your own neighborhood, you could, you could stand up here and say, no, they're not getting along. Um, in fact, not that many people do that. If you do that, you're overwhelmingly likely to, uh, to want to reduce migration. But even if you say, yes, everyone gets along pretty well here, uh, we still get a uh, slight majority for reducing a lot and a strong majority for reducing at least somewhat, 79%. And what proportion said yes and what proportion said no? That bottom question? Uh, that I don't have offhand. I know that a solid majority say yes. Um, but I, I don't remember the actual figure. So, um, just to sum up um, the evidence on imagined immigrants, um, they're here to settle permanently. They're mainly Eastern European or South Asian. They're hard workers, but they want to live on benefits also. Uh, this didn't come up in the, the polls, but comes a lot in media discourse and, and letters to the editor that many of them are bogus uh, of various types. They're, uh, they say they're here for asylum or as students, all these legitimate ways right, of coming to the country, but they're actually making bogus claims. Uh, they're low skilled, they're without financial means to support themselves. Uh, they comprise 20 or 25% of the UK population. And they're here because Britain is such a soft touch and that's doing more than its share. These are partial truths at the very best. And so since this is a media seminar, I wanted to suggest um, it's worth considering um, whether there's, there's some culpability there in the stream of information that people get. Um, it's sort of so consistently distorted um, that you can you can blame the people themselves, and there, there may actually be something to that. People may be predisposed to accept negative information and uh, believe uh, distortions. On the other hand, when they're exposed to the type of information that they are exposed to on a regular basis, um, maybe they would be hard-pressed to have a more accurate picture. OK, so the time I have left, I want to shift, um, I mean, I've shown you a few of my findings, but shift more um, towards sort of the central concern of, of my research in this area, um, which is in the relationship between uh, the two minds in the other sense, implicit attitudes toward uh, immigrants or different types of immigrants, and explicit um, or controlled attitudes or social norms. Um, particularly those against uh, prejudice or racism. So this whole thing about imagined migration, why should it matter who people are imagining? I think it's precisely because people are of two minds, that immigration attitudes are not just a principled, controlled response to this abstract idea of people coming from other countries to live in Britain. At the same time, I don't think they're pure, automatic gut responses to Hmm. People are coming in. I imagine what they're like. Um, I'm. Uh, I feel positive or negative, um, sort of emotional response, approach, avoid, and that determines my attitude. Um, rather, I think that um, as you get toward policy questions and impact on political choices, that we have to consider a, a blend of these two responses, and they're both there, and they're both real, and um, they're both worth studying. Um, I'm going to suggest that automatic reactions are, are likely to vary. Actually, explicit ones do too, but um, automatic responses to migrants 
are likely to vary quite a bit as different groups um, are imagined. And also that norms of equal treatment might apply more strongly in some contexts, and that's the subject of uh, a, another study or two um, that I'll show you shortly. So um, just to motivate this a bit, this is a, a blurry chart showing a decline uh, over two decades in self-reported prejudice among BSA respondents. Um, so the British, uh, the British Social Attitudes Survey has asked um, almost every year people to just assess themselves and say um, if they consider themselves very prejudiced, a little prejudiced, uh, not prejudiced at all. Now you're probably skeptical of um, the value of this question, um, and you probably should be. And probably the reason, um, at least in the back of your mind, is that well, this might be an actual decline. Maybe people really are becoming more tolerant. Or maybe they are just um, more likely now to say that they are tolerant because they don't want to appear uh, racist and admit to some interviewer that they are prejudiced. So it may be just um, a strengthening of social norms against uh, uh, appearing prejudiced or admitting to prejudice that's changed over time. So it's the second explanation that actually we find a bit more convincing um, and that we think is going to be relevant for explaining um, immigration attitudes and their political impact. So um, the first step in, in our project, and we here is myself and my colleagues Rob Ford at Manchester and Elizabeth Eberslotten at, at the University of Bergen in Norway, we decided that this was something that we needed to measure and this was something that um, comes from a social norm, um, which you would think embodies some sort of consensus, but that people might vary quite a bit in how strongly they subscribe to that norm and how much that norm uh, motivates them in everyday life, for sure, and in the way they respond to survey questions. Um, so we adapted scales that were developed by social psychologists in America to assess um, uh, attitudes toward race there and adapted them, um, not, didn't have to change them too much, to the European immigration context um, and developed this uh, set of two scales, one measuring internal motivation to control prejudice, so how much you don't want to appear prejudiced even to yourself as a matter of, of self-image, uh, and then external motivation. You don't care quite as much about um, your own self-image, but you certainly don't want to appear racist to other people. Um, and we found um, actually a bit less agreement with these items than we thought. I think some of them is due to the particular nature um, of a couple of questions about emotions that didn't seem to appeal to British people at all, so we may need to do a little more tweaking there. But to give you an idea of what we're, we're talking about, here's a question from the internal scale on the top. I attempt to act in non-prejudiced ways because it's personally important to me. Um, and then the contrast is uh, to avoid negative reactions from others on the external scale. Um, then the, the second step, um, not chronologically actually, but intellectually, was to measure the other side of the two minds, the implicit attitudes. Um, and this, uh, just to remind you of the contrast, um, so if you just look at these sets of words, you can see that uh, the left-hand column poses a, a significant challenge compared to the right hand of measuring them, how you actually get at them. And whereas you can just ask people about their explicit attitudes, you have to engage in a little bit of, of uh, subtlety to get at implicit attitudes. It's usually been done in the lab. Our survey is the first that I know of um, in Europe and the second that I know of overall to actually implement uh, implicit attitude measures on a survey of a random uh, subsample of a national population. So, um, very excited to do more than we have so far with this data. Uh, the tool that we chose was um, is called the Affect Misattribution Procedure, or AMP, um, for short. And this is what you see when you first sit down to do the AMP. 
um, you're told that you will see a series of Chinese pictograms. Um, you're asked to admit if you know Chinese, and then your, your data can be discounted. Um, the idea of the Chinese pictograms is that they are a neutral, sort of contentless, um, unless you know Chinese, affect-free stimulus. But you are going to be asked to rate them as either more pleasant or less pleasant uh, than the average. Ah, oh, this is even better than I thought, because um, this is what a trial looks like. So you are also told that before the character, you will see a picture of a face, or it can be anything. People have, have done amps with uh, beverages and products and things like that. But you will see an image, um, and you're told that it's very difficult, but you should ignore that image, not let it affect um, your reaction to the Chinese character. Um, now, the problem is this all happens so quickly, and the Chinese character is so neutral that um, it's been shown in psychologist labs that people can't help but respond um, to the character on the basis of their affective reaction to the face. Um, because after all, we have much stronger um, emotional responses to faces or familiar objects than we do to unfamiliar Chinese characters. Um, so a trial of the AMP looks like this. Really quickly, face, character, and then blank screen so you don't get to ponder your reaction um, while you're staring at, at the character. And you do this for a series uh, of faces and your sort of average rating to faces in a particular category becomes your implicit attitude score. So more slowly, face to character to blank screen. And what we did on the, the German and British version of the CCAP was um, assess, and it, was, it went out first in Germany, so the instrument was developed more with Germany in mind. Um, so to represent migrants, we used uh, pictures of Turks. Um, we had people, um, <laughs> Ihan smiling, <laughs> sorry Ihan. Um, we had people uh, around the college rate the pictures for attractiveness to make sure they were balanced on attractiveness and, um, <laughs> and to make sure that they were identifiably German or identifiably Turkish. Um, this was in cooperation with a business school uh, researcher, so we also had ratings of corporations and then to assess uh, attitudes toward Islam, uh, we had a series of women wearing headscarves. And we found, first, we haven't gotten too far with this data, but we've gotten far enough that it appears that it, it worked, which is a victory in and of itself. Um, so on average, um, as you would expect for Germans and British, uh, the German faces were preferred to the Turkish faces. Um, interestingly, there was a bigger ethnic gap among males, um, uh, not male respondents, but male uh, attitude objects than among females. Um, unfortunately, we had a glitch in the implementation uh, here in England, and we didn't get the headscarf rating, but um, in, in Germany, it was interesting, these were extremely disliked. They were um, the least favored among the people and rated almost as badly as the banks and oil companies and things like that, although not quite. They were still better than, than BP and, and Deutsche Bank, <laughs> thankfully, but too close for comfort. Um, so um, this is something that we're going to do a lot more uh, with soon. Um, but I will show you a, a quick result from there um, as I move on to what I have a few minutes to talk about, but which really is the, the bread and butter of the project. It's okay, it's still in the early phases anyway. Um, which is an examination of the politics of migration, the way anti-prejudice norms, um, automatic attitudes toward immigration, explicit attitudes toward immigration, um, interact with one another, um, determine people's policy preferences, and help to determine um, things like voting behavior, um, things like responses to persuasive um, uh, messages. Uh, so on automatic attitudes, our, our preliminary findings, um, 
we found a reasonably strong relationship where implicit attitudes, these AMP scores, <coughs> predict immigration policy preferences um, and predict other related opinions uh, as well. And we found a moderating effect that um, the relationship is different depending on the respondent's score on these anti-prejudice, the IMS and EMS items. So for people who are low, um, don't care that much about following norms against prejudice. Their implicit and explicit are in alignment. Um, so why bother hiding the prejudice, right? So they have a very strong relationship um, between their AMP score and their dislike of immigration. For higher anti-prejudice people, the relationship is weaker. We're actually hoping to find that there was uh, not a relationship there. Um, but we did find that it was weaker. Um, these are people who don't want to appear prejudiced to themselves or to others. Um, their explicit attitudes are more favorable than their implicit. Um, so that's why the relationship is weaker. And so the one uh, to focus on especially uh, is over here. This axis should be AMP score um, from positive to negative, and this is opposition to migration, or um, immigration should be reduced. Um, so the more negative your gut response um, to the Turkish uh, males and females, um, I should say, again, this, the, the German responses, we haven't done this analysis in Britain yet, um, but the, the more uh, unpleasantly you relate those Chinese characters, right, that you saw after the German faces, um, the more negatively you are likely to feel about immigration, the more likely you are to say uh, that immigration should be reduced. And you can see it's, it's there even for the, the high um, motivation to control prejudiced people in the, uh, the top line. Um, but it's tremendously strong if you're not very motivated uh, to sort of hide your prejudice. It's an extremely strong determinant. Um, I have a couple other things um, and very little time. I think I will um, skip this one and tell you quickly about one more study, um, which brings the norms and the political parties into it. So this is a, a, the Muslim schools experiment that we did this past winter. Um, and the question here is, will citizens endorse disparate treatment of Muslims? Will they be more likely to do so when provided with non-prejudice justifications? Um, so if they're worried about uh, appearing prejudiced, then if you give them a, a nice sort of uh, neutral reason why it's OK to discriminate, they might take it. And then politically, how will this vary with the messenger? Um, and we, we test several uh, parties known for their anti-immigrant stances. And then how will the effects vary um, for more or less anti-prejudice uh, normative voters? Um, the, the survey experiment design, again, random assignment, divide our respondents into groups. Give one group just a question about Muslim schools with very little other information. And the other groups got a short argument um, before the question uh, and then answered the same question as the control groups. And then we varied the source um, by the different political parties. And the idea is just um, because these are randomly assigned groups, um, you can just see if um, the average response in one group is different from another. And if there is a difference, you can attribute that clearly to um, what you changed um, to what was uniquely assigned to that group. Um, so quickly, this was the, the preamble. Uh, the control group just got that first um, bit, the no message. The idea is that this is just like Catholic schools or even Church of England schools here. So there's um, if you're against these Muslim schools, you're in effect um, uh, endorsing discrimination. Um, and then the experimental treatments involved this uh, argument um, placed in the, the voice of either conservatives, UKIP, BNP, or just politicians, arguing um, against such schools, but on sort of um, 
non-racist sorts of grounds, almost suggesting that it's actually bad for Muslims themselves to be segregated. Um, we found, first of all, people are pretty opposed to these schools to begin with. So um, <laughs> a neutral response would be right here. So the average in every group is, is, um, is leaning pretty heavily toward disagreeing with, um, with these schools being founded. Um, but the experimental treatments um, work pretty nicely here. So um, the first column, um, no message. Then the argument um, against schools, whether it's given just by politicians or by conservatives or um, by UKIP, is actually convincing. It, it shifts the groups who heard that were, were shifted uh, by a statistically significant margin to more negative attitudes toward these schools. Um, but over here, the BNP, um, this is marginally um, higher number, but not a statistically significant difference. Um, so the BNP was sort of the only um, group that was not effective uh, giving the same message and trying to persuade people to oppose Muslim schools. Was it controlled for, for about faith schools in general? Uh, no. And we got a lot of questions about that, and we're running this again um, in, in a way that takes that into account. Um, at the same time, though, the, the experimental differences are real, and it doesn't matter what you control for. Um, so um, it, it's more a matter of why you're getting that effect. Um, and it, it could have to do with opinions toward faith schools in general. Um, and then in, in terms of the relationship to our um, motivation scales, um, we find, again, a strong interaction. Only the people who are low in anti-prejudice are um, really moved by just the plain message. But when you bring the conservatives in, that's where you convince even the people who are high in anti-prejudice. The conservatives put their stamp of approval on it. Um, that's persuasive to a lot of people. Um, so, much more to tell that didn't want to get to anyway. Um, but general conclusions that we've gotten to so far, um, want to highlight, especially in light of that last study, this, that voters are sensitive to signals that discrimination is or is not legitimate. Um, so that means that what political and media elites do or say can be very um, uh, very important sources of information. And then, ah, I had one more on the cap, but this must not be that version. Um, yeah, well, I'll leave it there. If anyone wants to ask about the cap, ask about the cap. But um, thanks for your attention uh, to that barrage of data. And uh, any questions, I'd be happy to, to discuss now.